You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Grab a Bible. Um, You're going to need it today. You're going to want this in front of you in several places. It's going to be up on the screen, but you're going to you're going to want it right in front of you to track along with. And by the way, if you, don't, if you don't own a Bible today, we've got these Bibles on the table. It's free to you. Some of them come with very own, like their very own creative and unique artwork from children drawing on the cover of them. But you can take that and just go like, you own an original piece of art. Um, yeah. So anyways, grab that snag. Turn to John chapter 5. Man, we're closing in at like basically the end of this whole series, right? So I jumped in. If you don't know, if you're new to Hub City, I've been off for like the past three months, kind of on like a working break kind of thing, so I haven't been preaching. So I jumped back in last week to John, right? Now, if you know Hub City and you know me and know the way that I preach, let me just say this. Trying to figure out how to preach from John, the letter of First John, is like trying to preach one of figure out how to like preach a sermon on one of my sermons. Like it's confusing, non-linear, there's no points. You're just like, what is going on? So um, I- I'm excited for today. Um, it- it's no less confusing, but we are effectively wrapping up. And, and the deal is this, like you read Paul's letters and-, and-, and Matt walked us through this at the very beginning. Paul's letters are very linear. They have like, they follow this order, this structure to how he writes almost every time. It's because he's writing letters. He's writing letters that are meant to be read. John, and what we're reading here in 1 John, is really more of like this like poetic, creative sermon, right? That's meant to be taken, I think, in its entirety. Now, we wanted to preach through it expositorily. Matt and the crew did such an amazing job. But really, when you take in the whole of 1 John and just read through it, you, you see the patterns that John's developing and his thoughts and what he's doing. That, that's why, um, despite kind of bringing it to a close today, next week, we're actually going to do just that thing. So Matt's going to put some bookends to it, but the bulk of what we're going to do is we're just going to read through John's letter. Now, we did this back in First Peter's letter, and it's a unique thing to do. We're not going to do it all the time, right? Especially this fall when we preach Leviticus, we're not going to like at the end of it. We're not preaching Leviticus, nor would we read through the entire book. But, so, but we're going to do that. So that's next week. Um, it's, it's great. If you were here for First Peter and got to kind of experience that, I think it brings like a freshness to it to hear it. So we're excited to participate in that. Um, this sermon then, and John's intention and purpose, is he's writing to, to really uh, like churches. He's like presenting these ideas to churches um, kind of throughout Asia Minor. And one of the areas that he wants to kind of hit home and address is that this specific false doctrine or false teaching had infiltrated the churches, right? And so he's, he, he's recognizing that so many of these like newly minted believers who once were just so enthusiastic about their expression of faith and their confession in that faith and walking with Jesus are now experiencing some doubt, and some confusion and lack of clarity because there's this teaching that's come in. They're like, well, we thought Jesus was this, but there's some really compelling people that are saying Jesus is this, and we're trying to make sense of it. And so he's writing to give them clarity about who Jesus is and what has always been believed about Jesus. And then he's writing to to kind of remove that doubt because they had just 
these dense layers of like just junk being formed and kind of like encasing their heart, right? Some had been led to doubt because they'd been led astray by these false teachings. Others were questioning maybe their assurance of their salvation because maybe they were so trapped in some sin that just kept repeating itself in their life. They're like, well, maybe this isn't true of me to begin with. Some wrestled very deeply with deeply held cultural idols, which caused them to doubt. So, some wrestled and some simply began to just question like the body of doctrine. Do, like, do I believe what I say I actually believe? And for some of them, the circumstances that they found themselves in led them to question God's presence and his goodness in their life. For others, it's just like trauma that they've experienced, family of origin, whatever, and it runs so deep that it seems to be stifling that life that they once held so dearly to. And so doubt and the layers of doubt that were just wrapping themselves around his audience's heart. And so he's writing to give them an assurance of who Jesus is and who they are in Jesus. And he wants his readers to know and he wants us to know that God in Jesus and in the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit can cut through all of that, right? And, 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 and offer such a deep abiding assurance to his audience and to us through the person of Jesus. So before we dig in, I'm just going to ask God for help one more time for us, and then we're going to rock into this, okay? Sound good? Father, once again, we come humbly before you, and, and we just want to proclaim that we desperately need you in our midst today. We want to ask that you would open our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit to where you're moving and working amidst us as a people, that we would see you today and that we would recognize that, that if we're in you, if we follow you, we have the Holy Spirit that, that is now given to us as a deposit, as a guarantee for this beautiful inheritance. And the Holy Spirit that lives in us convicts us and teaches us and, and shows us and brings light to the truth of your word. So we ask that you, God, in your Holy Spirit would bring life to your word today. Not me, not the words that I say, but your Holy Spirit would convict and change and transform us through the proclamation of your good word. In your name we pray. Amen. So there's just a few questions that I think today's passage like brings up and, and really requires to be answered, right? And, and it's, they're all kind of similar, but it's like, like, how do we come to have faith in what the Bible says about the person of Jesus? And I think that this begins to answer that. And how do we come to have like this deep, assured confidence that we are in fact in Christ, that our confession and what we say about Jesus is true of him, and then the consequence of that is then true of us? How, how, how do we know that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? How do we come to have an assured confidence in the person and the work of Jesus and who he is? And, and John's going to then fill in the blanks for us here because God wants us not to just follow like a blind faith where we don't have like information. Like he's going to fill in and give us the information that we know. And in his grace, God has given this proof, this verification, this authentication of, of who Jesus is. So John's going to give us in this passage this like three-part 
testimony about Jesus, right? Which is meant then to boost a Jesus follower's confidence in Christ and the fact that they are in him, instilling again this abiding assurance in the person and the work of Jesus, who is then the object of our faith. So, so much of this book, this thing that we call a book, John, 1 John, it's written to give its readers some like metrics, right? Now, this is hard. Like, how do you give a metric or how do you have some type of like objective thing that you can look at to, to prove, in fact, that you are like saved, right? Because, because that's what they're wrestling with. But, but John does give us these metrics to, to gauge the reality of our faith. Is it something that's actually true and moving and working in us? This passage points us to the person or the object then of the faith, of our faith for that answer, and gives these testimonies to strengthen, to embolden us in our faith, right? And, and that person and the object of that faith, of course, is Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. So, so there's two parts to this passage, right, that, that, that we're going to look at. And, and you're going to see it very clearly. Verses 6 through 9 is that three-part testimony, those three witnesses that speak to and proclaim and verify that Jesus is who he said he was. So that happens in verses 6 through 9. And then the, the last few verses, 10 through 12, it's just simply like our response to the truth of the gospel, okay? So let's look at this passage, and we're going to look at into this, those two parts, right? So first, beginning in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see that these, these three things that bear witness to the person and work of Jesus. So before we dig in, let me just say this. Some of like the brightest and most respected scholars of Scripture have struggled to understand like the precise meaning of these verses, right? But there is just like this general sense, I think, in which we can understand John's argument. And I think that these verses, despite them being a little confusing, will make that clear. So let me just read back through verses 6 through 9, okay? So this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. I'm going to do a full stop right there because if you're anything like me, and if you are, the good news is there's help for people like us, so don't, don't worry about it. But if you're anything like me, you read that, and I'm like, is John down in South America, like, licking frogs right now? He's tripping. Like, what is he saying? This is so confusing. Now, let me submit to you that in that very complex sentence, John is saying actually something very basic and simple. Anybody want to take a stab at what he's saying? Just offer it up there for me today? No, right? Because you're like, but it, water and blood and what? How can you say that that is very easy to understand? Because I don't get it, right? Well, he's saying this. He's saying that the Holy Spirit the role of the Holy Spirit is this, is to testify about the person and work of Jesus, right? And the Holy Spirit is, is going is to come into the life of an image bearer, right? Maybe before they're regenerate and the Holy Spirit's going to begin to work and place this call towards the gospel on the heart of that image bearer, drawing them to the person and work of Jesus, who is the object of our faith, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so, so the Holy Spirit now is convicting and, and working and revealing Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit accomplishes all of this 
by pointing to Jesus's baptism and Jesus's death, right? As testimonies or verification that he is who he said he is. So in other words, John is saying, if you look into what is revealed about Jesus in both his baptism and his death, you will realize that through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is now testifying to you personally about who Jesus is. Now, as I said, man, this passage is difficult. There's all sorts of different varying opinions and ideas. Different commentators have disagreed as to what the water and the blood refer to in verse 6. Like, some of them feel like very different than what I just said. Like, like Luther and Calvin, they thought that the water and the blood that John's talking about point to the sacraments of baptism and communion as we receive them and participate in them, right? And so it's not a huge leap to think that baptism and communion speak about the, like I would hope that as you get baptized, which you should do if you haven't, um, and as you go to the table, which you should do as often as we provide it to go to receive grace and communion with the Father, we'll do that later. Of course, that speaks to the identity and the work. Like we're, we're recognizing something in those acts about the person and the work of Jesus. But John seems to be speaking about something like that actually happened to Jesus here. Other theologians like Augustine, like the fourth century North African theologian, said this, that the water and the blood here refer to an event like at Jesus's crucifixion. Like this is something that took place when Jesus was being crucified. So specifically, when that Roman soldier thrust that spear into the side of Jesus to prove that Jesus was in fact dead. If you remember that scene, John writes about it in John chapter 19. He says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side, and you can understand how Augustine would think this about this passage in 1 John, right? And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, now, so that would make sense. There's water and there's blood and there's a testimony and it's true, but that, that's showing the testimony that that water and blood and the commingling of that is it poured out Jesus' side is testifying to the truth that he was dead, right? So, so Augustine's a, a still a little off, right? Because his thought is like, since John is writing this letter, he's pointing back to that scene at Jesus' crucifixion where water and blood poured out of Jesus. So there's a few different ideas, right? But most commentators, and I believe, um, not that me adding my belief to this adds any weight and significance to these commentators, but, but, I, but I believe that this is like the, the right interpretation is that the water refers to Jesus's baptism, something that he experienced, and the blood is his shedding of his blood as own death, right? So, so why would John be saying this? Why would John say that Jesus's baptism and the shedding of his blood in his death, why do these things testify to the person and work of Jesus. Well, there's a very simple reason. John's audience, these like newly minted believers and the gospel communities that they're interacting with and doing life with, they were being infiltrated by these false teachers. And, the, and they were either teaching that Jesus, and this is, this is unique to understanding why, why John's pointing this. So that false teaching would come up and, and they were saying that Jesus was only the Messiah or only the Christ in this time in between his baptism and right before his death, right? Or, or that, that he had been the Christ, like he had not been the Christ prior to his baptism, but the Christ 
like figure like descends on him in his baptism. Not that Jesus was always the Christ, that he became the Christ at his baptism, and then right before he was put on that Christ, that the Christ left the person of Jesus and he became just a human again. So that's the 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 that's the core of this false teaching that they're coming up against, right? And Jesus is saying, or John's saying, like, no, 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 like we learn about who Jesus is in his baptism, and we learn about who he is in his death. And so that's why he's pointing at, because he's going to refute that false teaching. Does that make sense? False teaching is that Jesus became the Christ at his baptism, stopped being the Christ right before he was dead. There's huge problems with that thinking. That would cause you then to doubt the assurance of your salvation, right? So it means this, right? Jesus was just a human when he died on that Roman cross, right? But Jesus, in the wholeness of his person, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, did not die. So the human died, but Jesus, the Messiah, did not. So in other words, the Christ, like, floated down from heaven, landed on Jesus in his baptism, but then peaced out right before his crucifixion. And for some goofy reason, this was apparently confusing the community of Jesus followers. It was like, well, that's not what the gospel tells about Jesus. It tells us that he was eternally God. He's a part of the Trinity and that he was Jesus and, and the Christ when he died on the cross. So, so John, to sum it up, is saying this in verse 6. Understand this, that Jesus, who is the Messiah, Jesus, who is the Son of God, did not become the Son of God at his baptism, but through the baptism, and through his baptism, it was revealed that he is the Son of God, and his kingdom was inaugurated. And at his death, he did not cease to be the Messiah, but his being the Messiah and the Son of God was absolutely necessary for his death to apply benefits to us all. There's no Jesus dying on a cross apart from him being the Messiah where atonement is happening, where he becomes the propitiation. He had to be the Christ to be that atoning, stand in our place, sacrifice. And so that's false teaching needed to be refuted because it was leading people astray. So listen, if you're still confused and twisted by how John says this, it's okay. So am I. Why didn't he just say it like I said it? Because he says it weird, right? But, but it's clear that John is pressing home some important truth. If Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, if he did not take on himself our nature in his incarnation and bear our sins in his death, as the God-man, then he simply cannot reconcile us to God. And so that's why pointing to the work of the Holy Spirit and the testimony that we receive through his baptism and his crucifixion becomes so important, right? Because who is Jesus? Who Jesus is, right? And, and how we understand Jesus and what we believe about Jesus, right? What the scriptures say about Jesus, like redemption hangs in the balance. If he's not the Christ at his death, then there's no redemption. If he is, redemption is offered. And confessing, right, that truth. And we, we talked about this term last week, pisteoing, which is that word believe, but pisteoing in the original language carries this meaning of like, we're putting all of ourselves into what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus. That is this authentic indication that we are redeemed. And the objective testimony of Jesus's baptism and his death John says in this passage, is in perfect harmony with what the Holy Spirit says about Jesus. So that's that three kind of fold testimony, right? Does that make sense? 
We've got the Holy Spirit, we've got the water, and we've got the blood, which is referred to, like if you look at verses 7 and 8, look at those verses again, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and all three of these things are in agreement. So the Holy Spirit is not saying something different about Jesus at his baptism and his crucifixion than what those things say about themselves and what the scripture reveals about them, right? And so this is a direct, like, combating that false teaching. John is saying that these three things confirm who Jesus is, right? The water, the blood, and the spirit, the water and the blood, referring to these, like, historical events, these biblical scriptural events which characterize Jesus's public ministry and the Spirit referring to this inward testimony of the Holy Spirit to us, right? The Holy Spirit comes in and works in our life and points to Jesus and authenticates Jesus by pointing us to his baptism and his crucifixion, these significant events in Jesus's life. So the Holy Spirit is what God gives us to cut through and penetrate all these layers of anxiousness and doubt and insecurities that are entombing our heart. Yesterday, I went to one of our local big box like home supply stores. And I'm not going to say which one because I don't want to throw them under the bus, right? And the reason I found myself at that store is uh, Jennifer and I were out looking at our yard and I was like, man, you know, it's got a should be much greener at this point because it's been raining so much. And so I was like, let me kind of check it out. I'm like, oh, like there's this thick layer of thatch like down in our yard, which is like dead debris, like dead grass. And I was like, it needs to be dethatched. I need a dethatcher. That's why I found myself at one of our local big box chain stores that provides home supply tools and stuff. So which, by the way, what is going on with those, by the way? Like, Jennifer and I visited one over in Central Oregon just a couple weeks ago, and, and let me just say, there was not a person to be found. We were all ready to buy a weed eater, and all the other things that would need to go with that could not find a person to unlock the cage, and so we just peaced out. We, I was like, I'm done. Like, I just need somebody to help me, and there's nobody to help me. This one that I went to yesterday was a different one, less orange, and there was a ton of help there. Too much help, right? So I go out to the lawn and garden center, and I'm like, I need to buy a dethatcher. And the person that I find, this is the guy. He's got half of a blue mohawk, to which I just go like, why not go all the way? That's like running half a marathon. Just go full up. I think the blue was to distract from the fact that he just went half seas with the mohawk. So he's like, I can tell you all about dethatchers. Takes me in, takes me to the dethatcher aisle. I'm like, hey, I'm interested in both push ones but I've got a mower, a ride-on mower, so I could get a pull-behind one, too. He's looking on the phone. He's like, hey, all we have is this pull-behind one. And I'm like, cool, tell me about that. Tells me about it. But he's really working hard to get me to not buy this, right? And he's like, he's like you could just probably rent one. I'm like, I'm here to buy one. I'm like, what is, these stores are working so hard at not getting our money, right? So anyways, I purchase it. I put the dethatcher together with my own hands, I think it should be a bigger round of applause. Me. This is me. I put it, I took, to, yeah, I know. I had to buy all the tools while I was there, put it together, use it. It was great. And, it's, and so I'm like towing it behind. And you can see it. It's like pulling up all this dead layer of, of, of grass that, that water could not penetrate, right? Like fertilizer can't get through, water can't get through. 
Now, I know that's a weird analogy here, but, but like in so many ways, like that's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. The Holy Spirit is working through layers of dead debris that has entombed our heart that causes us to doubt. And the Holy Spirit doesn't even have to like remove it one piece at a time. The Holy Spirit just like breaks through all of it and gives us this deep assurance, right? And so that's basically the first part of the story. It's what the Holy Spirit's doing. It's, it's really rather simple, right? Even though it's said like super confusing. The Holy Spirit's here. It's going to point to these things, all three of these things. The Holy Spirit, Jesus's baptism, Jesus's crucifixion, all point and should give you a deep assurance in your faith as that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is what scripture says about him. So let's jump into verse nine, right? So if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. So now he's saying like, hey, listen, like you can listen to humans say what they want to say about anything about Jesus, but how much greater is God and what he says about Jesus? So John's point is simply this in verse nine. When the spirit testifies to the person of Christ, like when the Spirit points you to who God's Messiah is, God's loving and compassionate and just and righteous, redeeming and restoring Messiah, it's always Jesus. He's never going to point you anywhere else. It's always Jesus. Jesus as the divine Messiah. Jesus as the beloved Son of God. That is the Holy Spirit's testimony. And listen, our whole entire justice system, as flawed as it may be, as imperfect as it is, if in that system, the very best that we have is human testimony in a court of law, and we have to trust and believe it, John is asking us in verse 9, how much more should we be convinced by God's own testimony. And what's the purpose of this testimony? To animate a dead heart, to unravel the layers of sin and death that has entombed this lifeless heart and create new life in it, to create faith in that new heart that Jesus, the son of a Jewish handyman, is God's Messiah, the son of the living God. And that, for me, that's it, y'all. Like, I'm going to believe and proclaim that until my dying day. I literally cannot guarantee that I will ride bicycles to my dying day, which sounds crazy as, I, as I'm saying it, but I guarantee that the animating work and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit that is true in my heart, I will proclaim that until my dying day because it's only and all about Jesus for John here, right? So, so listen, that is our confession at Hub City Church. So when I say, Hub City, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? Y'all say what? You say amen. We are in agreement with that. And by saying that, and I think I like I need to hear you say that, right? So let me just say this again. Hub City, do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And, you, and, and as you say amen, I want you to know you are standing in accordance with the Holy Scriptures. You are standing in accordance with what the earliest followers of Jesus said to be true about Jesus. So you're not just making this up. You're saying, I am in alignment with the most 
earliest truth statements about the person and the work of Jesus. So John is pressing home that truth in this passage, and he's evoking faith in Jesus, who is the Son of God, the divine Messiah, the Savior of sinners, because Jesus, this divine Messiah, came in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, comes in the flesh for our salvation, and that is absolutely essential for our redemption. And so John is pressing that truth home. Why? Because some fools are teaching some other nonsense, and it's actually working, and believers are being enticed away from the truth of who Jesus is, enticed in their hearts. And so he's teaching this very foundational truth. Like there's a lot of other things that are true about Jesus, but most minimally what the Holy Spirit testifies is that Jesus was inaugurating his kingdom at the baptism and that he was the Messiah at his death so he could stand in our place as the Savior of sinners. Why is John preaching that? Because that truth, that fundamental truth is being denied now by these believers because they're being led astray by this false teaching. And listen, nothing has changed since John's day. And so this is true for us today. And this is so important. You cannot say yes to Jesus and reject the Bible's claims about who Jesus is. Jesus defines himself for us in the scriptures. The scriptures give us God's testimony as to who Jesus is. Jesus is not ours to imagine or redefine to fit whatever cultural context we find ourselves in. We either believe in the Jesus who is revealed and so clearly to find in the gospel, the Jesus of scriptures, this eyewitness testimony of the apostles speak to that, or we reject him. And that's it. But it's simply not on the table for you or me to accept Jesus, but then define and image him like I want or prefer. John is making it clear that Jesus, who is the object of our great faith, the only Jesus who redeems is the Jesus Christ presented to us by revelation of God in Scripture, testified to in his life and by the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. So John is making it clear to us that to be a follower of Jesus is to have a new heart made new by the work of the Spirit and that we believe in the Jesus of the Bible. So last thing, faith is then this necessary instrument in our receiving the life of the Son. Let's look at verses 10 through 12, right? So this part is so straightforward. Some of y'all are not going to like it. I'm just going to teach you what John teaches here, right? Verse 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son of life or Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I feel like I don't even need to say anything about this, but you're not so lucky that I'm not going to. 
He's like, John's going to pivot here, right? He's focusing now our attention on our response about this testimony. And his point is pretty straightforward. Faith is integral to our receiving the life of the Son. Because in verse 10, he says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So John very boldly here says then to reject that truth, right? Or to slightly distort the truth of Jesus or to completely redefine who Jesus is. This testimony about who Jesus is, the testimony that we receive from the Holy Spirit, that testimony is validated by Jesus's baptism and death. And so for us to like immerse ourselves in that and to put ourselves in that and say like, well, let me, let me tell you who I think Jesus is, the Holy Spirit's like, I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> like, I've told you who he is. Like, if you say no to, to who the scripture says Jesus is, you're rejecting that testimony. You're calling God a liar, right? John says, if you do that, if you're calling God a liar, because you, like, if you, if you reject this Jesus, if you reject the testimony that the Spirit gives, that the Scripture gives about Jesus, if you do that, you call God a liar, and here's why. Because God has already said what he thinks about Jesus. He's already told us what he thinks about Jesus, who he is, what his work is, and you can't sit on the fence on that one. You either accept it or you reject it. And trying to be neutral about it is not actually being neutral. It's rejecting God's own testimony, which John said is calling God a liar. I get that. Listen, my whole life, like I kind of had some church experience and then didn't. So for 23 years, I thought I was sitting in neutrality about Jesus because I was like, man, I don't hate Jesus. Like, I still believe that Jesus lived and existed. I just have a lot of questions about other things. I wasn't walking in faith with Jesus, but I thought I was like super chill and cool being the peacemaker. I'm like, I'm not cool with Jesus, but I got some questions about some stuff over here, right? And I just realized like that wasn't neutrality. That was me rejecting the truth about Jesus. Jesus, because you either have and stand on the testimony of scriptures and the witness of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus, that that, that that Jesus that is revealed there, or you're rejecting it and you're calling God a liar. And so John is then presenting this, right? He's pressing home this like very important fact that we cannot be neutral about the gospel. We cannot be neutral about the claims of Christ. We must either embrace and bow the knee and worship him and confess that he is who is offered to us in the gospel for salvation, or we reject him. And in rejecting him, we face judgment with, uh, with him, not as our advocate, not as our intercessor. We face that judgment standing before God alone without Christ. And then verse 11, John goes on to say that this testimony is this, right? And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So John is telling us here that, that there's life, that there's this eternal life, and it's life forever. The life in the new heavens and the new earth is in Jesus Christ, and it's in our union with him. And he tells us some important things about eternal life, just real, real quick. First, he tells us God gave us this. It's not 
something that we earn. It's not a prize that we achieve. It's not something that we get through our own effort. It's a gracious gift given by God, unending in his mercies, unyielding in his grace. He gives us something that we could never earn or accomplish for ourselves. Now and new and here, he gives us eternal life. Second thing is this, eternal life is found only in Christ. And so in order to give it, God sends his son. And John wants us to pay attention to this, that God gave us eternal life and that life is in his son because eternal life is found only in the person of Christ. God gives his son that we might experience eternal life. Scripture says this, this is how much God loved the world, that he gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why so that no one need to be destroyed by believing in him. Anyone can have a whole and a lasting life. God did not go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it and why because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when the Holy Spirit introduced you to him. Because eternal life is in the Son, God gives his Son that we might have eternal life. And then real quick, last thing, notice in this passage that this eternal life, that we're just not like sitting around twiddling our thumbs waiting for it to happen because it speaks not just to like a quantity of life, but a quality of life that we experience here and now in the life of the believers. Guys, what is that then, eternal life? I think it's this. I think it's to be invited to the table of the God who exists in Trinity and, and to live richly, selflessly, purposely, lovingly, humbly with each other, with those that also worship and serve the triune God. And so these true gospel communities, like wherever they exist, they become an outpost of the kingdom. And the Jesus followers that then live in these communities, they live in such a way that they image a foretaste of the fullness of that eternal life and their family, and their friends, and their neighbors, and their co-workers, maybe even an entire city, see how they lived, and to come to discover the Jesus that they believe in. Hub City, listen, now, we just experienced two and a half years of, yeah, and I listen, I don't want to think about it either. I get it. But we just experienced two and a half years of some of the craziest, some of us are still walking through this, like circumstances that are so very different and difficult, right? And, and they're still very different in, 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 than John's day. Like what John is writing his audience to is so different than what we're experiencing, right? But as this crazy, like poetic sermon, like jumps off the pages and travels through time, while the circumstances are completely different, the solution that John points to, which is the most important thing, however you want to say it, is to hold on tightly to Jesus, what you believe about him, how you believe about them, and, and how you worship and serve him, whatever you face. And then also, it, it, it's, it's, 
It's how you come together with the community, right? So, so John is saying, whatever you face, hold tightly to Jesus and hold tightly to this family that I've given you, right? And he wants us to know that if we have Jesus, we get each other so that whatever you're facing, false teaching, global pandemic, if you're just a community that will cling tightly to each other as you cling tightly to Jesus, then you should have this deep assurance that you are in fact a new creation in Christ eternally and faithfully his. And for those of us in this room that have called Hub City our home over the past few years, I believe in my whole heart that that is what's true of us. We've held tightly to Jesus. We've clung tightly to each other. And so you can rest in the deep assurance that you are his.